0: Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me, uh, you know, I, I must say almost every time I do a show, I go, I have a very special guest. I have a very special guest, but you are a special guest. With me is Lauren Culp, and in case you've had your head buried in the sand for the last several months, Lauren Culp is running against our incumbent governor, Jay Inslee. Welcome, Mr. Culp. Can I call you Lauren?
1: It's great to be with you. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, and it's okay to call you Lauren? absolutely yes (laughs) all right great um all right and in the interest of uh full disclosure and uh fairness i did extend an invitation to our governor to join me for a show i have not gotten any responses from that however I've, i've extended a couple of a couple of invitations so um i would be happy to interview him as well if his time and availability allows it um Lauren, you have a background uh, that is kind of interesting. You have a military background, and you also have been a small business owner. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you think that might qualify you to be governor of this state?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I I appreciate this opportunity to uh, talk to you and the voters out there. But um, I'm I'm a lifelong resident of Washington State. I, I was born and raised in this state. My dad was in law enforcement when I was young. He was a deputy sheriff uh Fort Jefferson County. I went to grade school, junior high, and my freshman year of high school in Chimacum, which is right outside of Port Townsend. And uh, in my freshman year of high school, my parents moved us to the eastern side of the state, to Republic, and uh, my dad got out in law enforcement. They bought a lumber yard and, and he built houses as well. And um, at the age of 19, I joined the United States Army. I probably served uh, my country in the world famous 101st Airborne Division, and the 2nd Infantry Division as well. And I went through drill sergeant school, helped to turn civilians into soldiers. Uh, I was also the honor graduate of the Non-Commissioned Officers Academy at the 101st Airborne Division. And I was also the honor graduate of my class out of uh, advanced individual training as well. Served a year overseas in South Korea. And uh, when I got out of the military, um, Barb and I moved our young family. By the way, I've got two grown sons and seven grandkids that live in this state as well. Barb and I have been married about 43 years. But after getting out of the military in 1984, I went to work in the trades, in the building trades. I learned how to build houses, uh, you know, and do concrete work, foundations and driveways. And after learning the trades, learning how to run a business after four years of working for other people, I started my own construction business right out of Olympia, where we lived at the time. And in 1988, I started my own business, ran that for over 20 years, built it up from Basically nothing, you know, one employee, one little truck. Um, And after 20, 21 years, had multiple trucks, multiple crews doing jobs all around Puget Sound. And I decided to realize my childhood dream in 2010. A job opening came open for a police officer in this small town of Republic where I went to high school, where I met Barb, uh, where she had lived all her life. And I applied for that job You know, at 49, I thought, well, you know what? If I don't realize my childhood dream here pretty quick, I'm going to be too old. So at the age of 49, I went through the police academy with a class that was about half my age and made it through, became a police officer, realized my childhood dream. And I've been a patrol officer. I've been a sergeant for the force. I was a narcotics detective for about three years. I worked with the North Central Washington Narcotics Task Force, multi-jurisdiction task force. And I've been the Chief of Police in the Republic for the last four years. So it's been very rewarding. Um, But, yeah, that's my background. I've been in leadership positions um, all my life, you know, starting in the military and uh, on up through.
0: I wanted to ask you about the police officer uh, role that you have had. When you look at what's happening in the state, primarily in the western part of the state, um what what's your opinion as a police officer of uh king county wanting to defund police departments and seattle of course which gets more press of wanting to defund what what's your take on that what is your opinion as a, a police officer
1: well i i'm you know as you might i'm not a lifelong politician right and i don't give pol- politician type of answers i'm pretty straightforward you know when i get asked a question i give the answer and i think that defunding the police is about the stupidest thing that I have heard in a long time. We have about 800,000 police officers across this nation that go about doing their job of protecting good citizens and putting criminals in jail every day, every night, all year long. And 99.9 of them do an excellent job of it. You know, and when uh, one or two step out of line, then good police officers arrest the bad ones and put them in jail where they belong. It does happen, just like in any walk of life. There are people that have bad intentions. But to paint like the left is doing, all police officers as racist killers, is absolutely unacceptable. We need our law enforcement. We need to back the blue. We don't need to defund the blue.
0: Do you feel that improvements uh, uh, that have been uh, talked about, that have been mentioned as required, are actually improvements that need to be done? Or, and if so, how would you propose they be done? Or do you think that that's just a natural evolution? It will take care of itself. How do you feel about the whole issue as opposed to the reaction to the issue? Well, you,
1: you have a very vocal uh, small group of people on the far left that want to demonize the police. Every time there's an incident involving a white police officer and, a, and a, a black suspect, the way that they're handled, it's always demonized in the media. The far left always demonizes the police before the facts are even out on the case. You know, we've seen that happen throughout history, basically, and especially in the last uh, eight to ten years. You know, I remember when President Obama was was president. If there was a, a shooting, a police shooting, immediately. President Obama was on the case of the police that they were wrong, and we know now that in so many of those instances, uh, the police were justified in what they did. You know, they didn't just show up and go, "Oh, there's a black person. Let's get out and shoot him." They were called there or dealing with a crime, dealing with a criminal. And the sheriff uh, from Milwaukee, David Clark, uh, a black sheriff, served his community for decades and I might add a Democrat, he wrote a book. It's called Cop Under Fire. And I would highly recommend everybody get a copy of David Clark's book, Cop Under Fire, and read that because he talks about this. He talks about the race issue and how it is an extreme left view of police officers. And he goes through all these cases and talks about the facts, not the rhetoric that the left tries to spew, but the facts of it. I would highly recommend that.
0: Okay, I appreciate your, your openness and your honesty. Surely, you have feelings as to at this point in the campaign as to whether or not those those feelings that you have um, are popular feelings. Do you feel like you're kind of preaching to the choir? Do you feel like you are the lone man standing out there with a message? How how are you feeling about your message at this point in the campaign?
1: Well, I don't change my message. You know, like a lot of politicians do, depending on who they're talking to, where they're at, uh, talking to people. My message is the same. It's always been the same. I I wrote a book two years ago that gives my views, my take on the situation, my take on the government, my take on the rule of law. And so um, I, I wish that every politician before any election, before they ever thought about running, that they had written a book so that people knew where they were coming from, who they were, what they stood for way before anybody was thinking about running for governor. But my views don't change, and my views are getting support all across this state. We're having, I think we had like five rallies in King County, uh, Snohomish County, Skagit County, Pierce County, all over this state, Kitsap County, just uh, a couple days ago. And we're having as many as 2,500 people come to my rallies to hear me speak. And at every single rally, when I get done speaking, I get off the stage, I have a meet and greet line where I stay there until the last person has come through that line uh, to come up and talk to me, meet me. And I love meeting we the people because that's who I represent and going to represent as governor. But not only conservative minded people, that's, that's what's surprising some people is that Democrats are coming to my rallies. They're hearing me speak. They're seeing what I stand for. They've read my book, American cop. They've seen my website, cult for They see the solutions that I have. And, and, They are voting for a Republican for the first time in their life. I am hearing that over and over and over. And people, just today, um, I'm in Republic. I, I stopped by here on the way from the west side. We've got a rally tonight in Spokane. I went into Republic, where I live, got a haircut, picked up the mail, and people are coming up to me on the street that aren't even from Republic. They are just coming to Republic to see where I'm from, see the town. And they're... Well, for instance, a young couple came up to me, probably in their mid-30s, and they said that they had never voted. They registered the vote just so that they could help to get me in office. And these are not your Mm -hmm. typical conservative type of people. You know, they had big hoops in their ears. They had uh, nose rings, both the husband and wife, and colored hair with tattoos. You know, typically I wouldn't have thought that I would attract uh, that demographic, but apparently the message of individual freedom and liberty and getting back to the constitutional principles that made this country and this state great is resonating across the, uh, the aisle to Democrats and independents as well as conservatives. And it's, it's mm-hmm. heartwarming, I mean, to see that that message is reaching people because they're, they're seeing what's going on. You know, with a Democrat governor, we've had Democrat governors in this state for 35 years. And they're seeing what happens when the governor is just making arbitrary rules and decisions that affect 7.5 million people, not even calling a special session. You know, that's the very least he could do. Call a special session. Get the representatives of We the People in there to have a say on what's going on. But he's refusing to do that. For six months, we've Mm -hmm. been locked down. And this was all, remember, to begin with, to flatten the curve, right? Well, Mm -hmm. there was never a curve. Our hospitals were never overrun. But here we are six months later. And we're still dealing with one person in the governor's office telling us what we're gonna do from week to week. And nobody knows what the next thing is. Nobody knows because he's not following the rule book for our government, which is the Constitution. You know, the the mm-hmm. founders of Washington were brilliant people. They wrote the rule book for our state, right? The Constitution. And the very first thing that they put in a Washington state constitution was Article One, Section One. And it says that the power is inherent in the people and government is there to protect citizens' rights. And then if you go to Article one Section 7, it says that no citizen shall be disturbed in their private affairs. And not only the conservatives, but people on the Democrat side and independents are seeing what's going on, and they realize that if we had the rule of law, we would have, you know, when I'm governor, I'm going to put out the information with medical professionals, tell the citizens what's going on, especially like if this virus, make sure the supply chain is open as possible for equipment that's needed, and put the information out to the citizens. Tell them what we should do, what might happen if we don't follow the medical advice, but then leave it up to individual citizens to decide what's best for themselves, their family, and their business, because that's how you are governor over free people in a free state, right? We're all Americans. There are far too many flag grape coffins in our history for Mm -hmm. us to stand up and allow one person to dictate from the governor's office what we're going to do.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about the COVID response from the government. Um, There's been a lot of criticism, and I've interviewed several elected officials since the COVID thing started, all of whom seem to expect that there would be a special session called. Now it becomes clear that there is not going to be a special session called, And the speculation from, uh, let's use your, you know, let's let's stick with the right and the left. The response from the right is that the governor is overstepping his uh, executive uh, boundaries. And the response from the left is to just kind of zip the lips and go with it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that there aren't more response to not having a special session
1: well, like I said, I don't sugarcoat things too much. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty plain-spoken person. Um, I, I'm representing we the people. And the reason that we haven't seen more of our legislature standing up and demanding a special session and making a big deal out of it is because we have a bunch of spineless politicians that are in office and have been in office for far too long. They have forgotten who they represent. And they should be banging on the governor's door every single day and getting in front of the media demanding a special session. But the governor won't do it. He doesn't want to do it. We the people are paying Global Consulting Company to tell him what to do and what to say on this virus. We are paying them $164,000 a week because the governor declared it in a state of emergency. He did it on a no-bid contract and hired this Global Consulting Company to tell him what to do. Uh, and I did not misspeak. It is $164,000 per week. He wants control. He doesn't want to give <laughs> up control. That's why he won't do it. Do you have it. any
0: idea how I, can, how I can get that job? <laughs> I,
1: I know, right? I, was, I got in know. the wrong line of work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, let's talk uh, then about COVID. Now in your campaign literature, you say that you think the role of government is just to provide education, to educate, and to support. Um, but not to dictate. Do do you really think that that's a universal response that you could stick with if you were governor, or are there parameters? Uh, How how specifically do you mean? Do you mean um, just send out the information and let the chips fall where they may, or do you think there is no role for the governor other than education?
1: Well, first of all, we have to understand the role of our government, right? Our, Our government was put in place by we the people, not to be our dictator, not to be your mom and dad, not to be our health care professional. Um, And Article One, Section 7 says that no citizen shall be disturbed in their private affairs. It doesn't say in parentheses unless there's a virus or unless there's a world war. You know, if if you look back in history, a Democrat president, FDR, in World War II took 120,000 Japanese Americans, Americans, and put them in internment camps pulled them out of their businesses, pulled them out of their homes, and put them in internment camps. And what was the reason for that? It was for our safety because there was a war. It doesn't say that our rights disappear because there's some kind of a crisis, whether that's a virus or whether that's a war. Our rights come from our Creator. It says that right in the Declaration of Independence, that government is put in place to protect citizens' rights. It says that in the Declaration of Independence as well as Article One, Section One of the Washington State Constitution. And so I don't believe that the government um, has the authority, or one person should never have that authority for sure, to tell citizens what they're going to wear, whether they're going to go to work or not. You know, this is a governor who shut down churches protected by the First Amendment. He shut down gun stores protected by the Second Amendment. And what do you think the media would do if he restricted uh, the First Amendment rights of the media, right? All of our rights come from our creator and guaranteed by the government or guaranteed protected by the government and the Constitution. So an infringement on any of them is an infringement on all of them because if we have a governor who can tell you what you're going to wear, what can't he tell us to do? I don't want a governor like that. I don't want a government like that. Because if you have a government that can tell you what to wear or what to do or whether you're going to go to an internment camp, then that's a government that can do it to anybody and tell you anything.
0: On that note, we're going to have to take a little break. Um, You know how that works. We need to get our messages out. And we will come back and continue our discussion with gubernatorial candidate Lauren Culp. I'm Heather Stark, and you're listening to Valley Talk.
2: Local news, local info. Valley, 104.9 FM. Hi everybody, this is Jay Fisk, host of Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley. We're the show that's on every week and we talk about nonprofits that help all of us who live, work, and play here in the fabulous Snoqualmie Valley. You can catch us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday and then we do an encore presentation on Monday at 6.30 p.m. That's 5.30 Sunday evening and 6.30 on Monday for Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley right here on Valley 104.9 FM. This is Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Get the latest health and medical news each week on Mayo Clinic Radio, airing Sunday at noon on Valley 104.9 KAPY-FM. And catch the Mayo Clinic Health Minute at 8.20 a.m. and 5.20 p.m. each weekday.
0: Welcome back to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark, and with me is gubernatorial candidate Lauren Culp. Um, I, I guess it's fair to say that you are a controversial candidate, Uh, especially out here in in Western Washington, it sounds to me from our conversation and from what I read that you're a much more welcome candidate over on the eastern side of the mountains. Um, But um, you have some interesting takes on things. Uh, I've heard some people say they're scared by you. Um, that you're just too uh, radical or conservative for them. And I've heard some people say that you are a breath of fresh air. So uh, I guess we'll all find out in November which which attitude prevails. But let's get some more details on your thinking, Lauren. Let's talk about Boeing. Now, the other day, uh, Boeing came through and announced that 900 jobs up in Everett would be cut, and those jobs would be moved uh, to South Carolina. There's still... What, 28 or 29,000 Boeing workers in this state, and yet there's a big brouhaha over it. What's your take on that? And not just from the government stance on that or Jay Inslee's stance on that, but just from the stance of unions.
1: Right. I, I believe that our government should be in place to help people succeed, whether that's businesses or families or schools. Uh, but so often we see the adversarial. Uh, point of view of government. You know, I ran my own business for over 20 years out of the Olympia area. And I know that this is not a business-friendly state. It's not a family-friendly state, right? Just look at the sex ed bill that got passed. But the government should be there to help businesses succeed because that helps people to get jobs and keep jobs. And so when, when you have a, a corporation like Boeing or any other company For that matter, I mean, we've lost a lot of small businesses across the state as well because of the actions of our governor. Uh, When you lose that many employees, that many jobs, that has a ripple effect. That's not just 900 or 1,000 people losing their jobs. That's families that have lost their income. That's kids that are going to be probably moving to another state to keep their job with that company that aren't going to be going to school. That's people who are not going to be buying cars from car dealerships or auto repair places that aren't going to have that repair work. That's coffee shops that aren't going to have those customers. It has a ripple effect. There are several subcontractors as well in, around in the community that, that support bullying and do a job for them that will most likely be leaving the state to go and be close to where the work is at as well. So it's going to have a huge ripple effect. And then we have a governor who turns right around and doubles down and starts threatening Boeing because they're doing what they need to do to survive. Just like so many small businesses around this state, doing what they need to survive and trying to work, trying to stay open, trying to keep employees working, and trying to save you know, their lifelong investment. But so many of them are losing that. And the governor to turn around and threaten Boeing like he is, that's absolutely unacceptable. He should be going to Boeing and saying, what what can we do to keep these jobs? What do we need to do? How do we need to make this better? What are we doing wrong? But no, he's threatening threatening them. It's absolutely unacceptable. He has forgotten the servant role of our government. He thinks he's a dictator on this virus, shutting everybody down, telling everybody they're going to wear a mask and tell there's a vaccine. You know, who knows when there's going to be a vaccine? I don't know. He doesn't know. Who knows if it's going to be effective? So he has lost touch with real Washington citizens with business he's never run his own business he doesn't know what it's like to run a business he went to college became an attorney chased around some ambulances and he's been a career politician ever since he just doesn't have a clue what's going on in the real world the struggles that business owners are going through so to threaten him like he is that's absolutely unacceptable it just shows that he's disconnected from real washington citizens doesn't have a clue Mm
0: -hmm. I think you make a good point there with a lot of our politicians who've been in office for decades. It is difficult to um, maintain a connection with the everyday citizen when you are so far removed from everyday. So I think you're making a valid point there. However, there are those who would counter with, but these people have been in office long enough. They know how the system works, and it's a complicated system. It's a complicated system that most of us, quite frankly, do not really understand. These people have been in office long enough to understand how it works. Do you see that side of the coin as well?
1: Our founding fathers that set up the United States of America, that wrote the Constitution, the founders of Washington State, when they wrote the Washington State Constitution, they didn't write it in legalese or political speak. It's in plain language. That's the rule book for our government. And, yeah, they have been in office for decades. Jay Inslee has but that doesn't mean he's doing what's right for the citizens or the businesses or the employees or creating jobs in this state. He has no clue. You know, he he ran around the United States trying to run for governor to pursue his own uh, agenda and got sent back with his tail between his legs because Democrats all across this nation rejected him and sent him home with an asterisk as a percentage point. So now his concession prize is to run for governor again. But like I said, he's lost touch. You know, he's living in a bubble, doesn't interact with real people. He won't even have a debate with me on the same stage. He wanted to do it through a Zoom call from his house. He's lost touch with real people. You know, he brought uh, maggot-infected apples to eastern Washington during harvest season. The apple capital of the state, he brings apples that are infested with maggots uh, from a quarantine area and puts at risk for mm-hmm. an entire apple crop in Washington state mm-hmm. committing a misdemeanor doing it and says, oh, I'm sorry, and nobody says anything about it? Are you kidding me? If, if I did that, if I did a, committed a misdemeanor, a crime in this state, what do you think the attorney general's reaction would be? What do you think the governor's reaction would be if I had done that? They would have been all over me, and I would have been charged with a crime. But he gets away with it because he's out of touch. And he says he didn't know that. Well, let me be clear. He is a, a former attorney from eastern Washington, and he has seen the signs that have been all over the highways everywhere in this state for decades that you can't transport apples. And he did it anyway and says, I'm sorry, and nobody says a word about it. But that's just a hypocrisy that's going on because he's disconnected (laughs) from real working hard, playing hard Washington citizens.
0: I've read different reports that they were trying to retrieve the apples, and uh, I'm wondering, do you know whether they actually did retrieve all of the apples or whether some of them were still missing?
1: Yeah, he didn't do a darn thing to try to retrieve those apples. That was left over to uh, people in the the, different counties that that tried to run it down. And as far as they know, they found most of them, but they don't know if they got them all. You know, they didn't yeah. know where they were to begin with. They found part of a box yeah. in, a, in one warehouse, and some of them, I mean, you dropped apples off at three different locations.
0: Let's talk about taxes. Nobody likes taxes. Um, you know, my father used to say there's no, nothing guaranteed in this world except death and taxes, and I find that most people do equate the two. Um, and yet we have a, a huge push and have for years to get an income tax. And you have some strong feelings about that. Can you briefly tell me why you are opposed to the income tax?
1: Well, when you tax citizens, you're taking money away from their families, right? You're taking money away from businesses, and our government should run as lean as possible, right? To to supply the essential services, you know, our roads, taking care of the elderly, taking care of uh, disabled, and funding our schools. You know, the basic things that are outlined in the Constitution that our state government is responsible to do. Other than that, they should leave free citizens to go about their business as long as they're not infringing on someone else's rights, because the Constitution is the rule book for the government. It tells it what it can and can't do. You know, it doesn't limit us as citizens. It limits the government. And when we look back, right before Jay Inslee took office, if you look back, you will see that the state budget was about $30 billion. And Jay Inslee promised on his first run for office that he would not raise taxes. He promised the citizens that, and then he got elected voted into office. And in the last eight years, he has raised taxes 33 times. That's 33 times that he lied to the citizens of Washington state. And our budget has almost doubled from $30 billion to $60 billion under his watch. And that's because he believes that government is the answer for everything. All we need to do is tax the citizens, tax the businesses more, get more money, and put another program into place or have another study. You know, politicians love to study things, and that's one of the first things that I'm going to be looking at when I'm governor to cut spending is anything in line items that say study is going to be up for a cut because they waste millions and millions of dollars on studies because they don't put in the hard work to look at things from a common sense perspective, from a real world perspective. And that's what I will start doing as governor is cutting the amount of money that is sucked out of our pockets to fund these stupid programs that the governor thinks it's going to fix everything.
0: Let's talk a little bit about theory. Um, It's all well and good for those of us who have not served in office to say, this is how it needs to be done. This is how it needs to be done. But have you had experience in your life in any of your many jobs where Things looked perfectly clear until you actually got into it, and then it was a little muddier and the decisions were a little harder. Is that something that you've experienced? Is that a possibility for some of these things? that the? And, and trust, believe me, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Do you think that some of these decisions that it's so easy for those of us not in office to criticize, do you think that there are underlying reasons and merits to them that we don't see because we don't have the total picture?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, politicians justify everything they do all the time, right? That's how they keep getting reelected. Well, we raised your taxes because we needed to do this. We, we spent this money on this because we needed this outcome. They justify everything all the time. But the thing is, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? When, when a person takes office, they raise their right hand, and they swear an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. That is the rule book for our government. The Washington State Constitution has a lot more details in it than the federal constitution because of the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Anything that's not outlined in the federal constitution is left up to the people or the states. That's the Tenth Amendment. And so the Washington State Mm -hmm. Constitution has a lot more things outlined that the government will do and take care of. But we don't have to reinvent the wheel just because we have a, a, a new person elected to office. The rule book is right there in front of every one of them. And they raise a the right hand and swear an oath to uphold and defend that. So the instruction book is right there. We just have to get people in office to understand that that is the role and that is the promise they make when they raise their right hand to abide by that rule book and follow it.
0: Let's talk move from taxes uh, to state budget. A lot of brouhaha over the, uh, the pay increase uh, for state workers, uh, including... the the governor, 3 point something percent, I don't have that figure in front of me, uh, despite the panic from um, the COVID process and despite the problems with our budgets, our operating budget from COVID, how would you take care of the projected shortfall in the budgets because of COVID?
1: Well, the budget crisis, right? Yeah, we are not in a budget crisis because of the virus. We are in a budget crisis because of the reaction of our governor. You know, he did not have to lock down all these businesses. He didn't have to pick winners and losers and say who was essential and who was not essential. He said you could go to a big box store, but mom and pop cafe or a church or a gun store or a salon had to close. He did not have to do that. Business owners, whether it's a big box store or a small mom and pop outfit, know how to protect themselves and their customers, and they know how to operate safely. You can't tell me it's safer to go to a big box store with 150 people, but don't go to church with a handful of people. Don't go get your haircut with one person. Right? That makes absolutely no sense. A virus doesn't know which buildings it's going to go into and which it's not. But to get to the, to the budget crisis that we are going to face because of the actions of our governor, it's pretty simple. I would put an immediate freeze on everything. No new hires, no spending increases, no wage increases, no equipment, no new programs. Everything has to be frozen because it gives us a snapshot in time and helps us to know where we're at and what to fix. And then instead of doing the lazy politicians method, like JNC wants to do, of across-the-board cuts, I'd introduce programmatic cuts, which requires bipartisan effort by all legislature to clean up the unnecessary expenses and it works from the bottom up you know to give you a, a specific example um i'd limit anything that includes the word study in it i referred to that just a few minutes ago because politicians waste millions of taxpayer dollars on studies all the time and, and we need to look at also at the duplication of efforts you know look at all the departments like the department of agriculture department of the college of fish and wildlife dnr a lot of people in those departments are working on the same things, doing the same projects. So we need to eliminate duplication of effort. And then politicians don't like it, but that's what has to be done. You know, they've got their pet projects and they've got friends that they're doing favors for, but this is how we fix the budget crisis freeze everything, introduce programmatic cuts from the bottom up, and eliminate all unnecessary expenses, um, dump the wasteful studies and get rid of the duplicated efforts. That will save us billions of dollars. And every department head that I appoint will have that same mindset that I do, that government is there to serve the citizens, not be their lord, not be their master. You know, we are public okay. servants, and they will have that mindset or they will be out.
0: Okay, give me an example of the duplication of service that you're talking about. Well, DNR, uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife,
1: and the Department of Ecology, they all deal with, uh land use policies all the time and that that's duplication of effort and i'm going to look at every department and see where we can eliminate that everywhere that's just one small example
0: so you're suggesting that by removing duplication of effort it might even be removing divisions of the government is that what you're you're saying or are you just talking about uh, tasks making sure that they're not doing multiple uh similar tasks
1: um both of those things you know um We don't need different agencies doing the same task. And I mean, I'm going to look into this extensively after the election. If we've got departments that are basically doing the same thing, we could combine the departments, uh, then I'm going to look at that as well. We need to save money. We need to get the tax burden off of our businesses and off of our citizens because people can handle their money and do better and increase the economy if they have more money in their pocket. And that's what I'm all about. I'm for less government, less intrusive government, and a government that works within its means and doesn't tax citizens to death. Like I said, we've gone from $30 billion a year in the state budget to 60 under James Lee's term. That extra $30 billion is coming right out of Washington citizens' pockets, Washington businesses' pockets. And we need to get this government off our backs and out of our pocketbooks. That will bring individual freedom and liberty back to the state like it was when I was growing up in the 70s and raising my kids in the 80s and 90s. You know, we didn't have a government that was so big and bloated that was telling us what to do from daylight till dark and taxing the crap out of us. That has to
0: stop. Okay. Um, You've given me a lot to think about here, and we're going to uh, head into another break. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about government overregulation that you you talk about. And I also want to uh, come over to um, the homelessness and drug addiction and crime and All of those problems that are plaguing us, and I believe they're plaguing the whole state, although Western Washington more than Eastern Washington, at least if the media is to be believed. So let's take a break. Let's uh, take care of uh, the announcements that we have to take care of. And then we will come back and we will continue our conversation with gubernatorial candidate Lauren Culp
2: right after this. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Valley Talk and Info. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and host of Food Sleuth Radio, the show that helps us think beyond our plates, connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. If you care about the food you eat, then join me on Sundays at 3 p.m. on Valley 104.9 FM for Food Sleuth Radio.
1: What inspires an author to write a book? How do novels and plays get written? Why are some books impossible to put down? Hi, I'm Richard Wolinsky, and I'll be speaking with authors getting to the heart of their creativity and their research on Bookwaves Sunday afternoon at
2: 3.30 on Valley 104.9 FM. Radio Survivor is our weekly show where we feature stories and interviews on community radio, radio history, podcasting, low power FM, college radio, and more. Radio Survive on Valley 104.9 FM, 6 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. This is Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. For the latest science and research breakthroughs in medicine, check into Mayo Clinic Radio, Sunday at noon on Valley 104.9 FM, KAPY.
0: Valley Talk, I'm Heather Stark. With me is gubernatorial candidate Lauren Culp. Uh, the uh, i guess I guess it would be fair to call you the underdog who's running for our uh, highest uh, elected uh, position in the state, and uh, you are from eastern washington but you 've also bit lived over here in western Washington. You have some pretty strong opinions about the size of government. I want to ask you about government regulation, and I have to tell you i i 'm one of these people that I think in every facet of our culture today, there's overregulation. I don't care whether you're dealing with your Amazon account or dealing with a governmental entity, but overregulation just seems to be endemic. Why do we have such overregulation, and what would you do about it? Right, and, and just to be clear, um,
1: I'm proudly from eastern Washington, lived here for about, well, I've been the chief of police in republic and a police officer here for 10 years, but I ran my private business out of Olympia for over 20 years also went okay. to school in Jefferson County uh, from grade school through freshman year of high school in Jefferson County on the west side so just to be clear about that but because people like to throw out there well there's never been a governor from eastern Washington for you know decades but anyway to, to get to your <laughs> question about the overregulation, uh, what we definitely have an overregulation problem in this state you know not just over taxation but and most of those regulations, they're not voted on by the legislature. They're not signed uh, into law by the governor. They are WACs, you know, WAC, it stands for the Washington Administrative Code. And those are rules that are treated like laws that are put in place by government bureaucrats. People in every department make up these WACs, and they're, they're put in place by career politicians. You know, um, I've never met one that uh, had any experience in the private sector. That, that knew how to run a business. That knew the, the stresses and the strains that are on our, especially our small businesses in the state, and as we're seeing with Boeing, with large businesses as well. So they're, they're put in place. They're just administrative rules that are treated like law, uh, that are put in place. And I don't know about you, but I have never heard of any of these whacks being eliminated. Right? They just keep piling on and piling on and piling on. There's volumes of them that would probably fill a large office space and they just keep adding to them all the time because that's what these bureaucrats think their job is. Well, I got appointed here, I'm in office now, I'm going to add this whack and that whack and but they don't eliminate any. And so the more and more of those regulations that you get, it restricts citizens, it restricts businesses more and more. You know, it's like a just a giant octopus that extends its tentacles and grows new tentacles around our lives and our businesses and restricts it. And so that has to be looked at, definitely. And I'm going to have a a large list of wax that need to be eliminated. As soon as I'm declared the winner, me and my team are going to go to work on that because we need to remove those tentacles from our businesses, from our lives, and and so that we are less restricted and can go about our lives and create more businesses, create more jobs all across the state.
0: Okay. That makes some sense. And um when you're looking at these WACs, I mean, they go back a long way. Are you thinking of an overhaul of all of them or you know periodically you'll hear of local governments for example or even state governments that go through and purge some of the no longer valid laws that are still in the books but nobody's they're not nobody's using them. Um, is that what you're proposing, or are you thinking of just picking and choosing regulatory department? How, I'm I'm not clear on how you would do this. Well, I, I'm
1: not considering going in and with a blowtorch and just burning them all down to the ground. Obviously, we need to have safe work environments. Um, you know, I, I'm not proposing eliminating all the wax. Obviously, we need some of them, but there has to be common sense in these. There, there has to be a real world perspective on these things, not just a bureaucrat. You know, somebody that went to college, got a degree, and went to work for the government, and they're in there making these things. They've, they've got to be looked at with the eye of common sense, right? And I've been in mm-hmm. leadership positions my entire life, starting in the military, running my own business for over 20 years, and then 10 years in law enforcement. And uh, I will have people that will be looking through those with me, and we will make decisions on what needs to stay and what needs to go, and I'll have a long list by the time I'm uh, sworn into office in the middle of January.
0: Let's talk about schools. There's a couple of things. Well, a couple of things. Yeah, there's a couple of things going on with education right now. Probably the two most uh, prevalent ones that are in everyone's mind are kids are not going back into the classroom. That's causing a lot of problems for parents. It's causing a lot of problems to deal with. Um, But also uh, at the same time, we have an issue with sex education bill. So let's start with the sex education bill. Your feelings on that? Why do you think that was passed? Do you think it's important that parents have input into that level of uh, curriculum? Uh, what, tell, me, tell me about the sex ed bill and uh, how, that, how that works for you.
1: Uh, it does not work for me. I don't want a government bureaucrat teaching my kids or my grandkids uh, about sex. That is a family matter. That should be between the parents and the grandparents and the children. I don't want someone else's viewpoint on, on that or religion being taught um, in public schools. And I want to go further. I want parents to be in charge of their children, of where they are taught, whether that is private school, home school, or public school. I want parents to be able to choose where their children are going to be educated. It doesn't matter if zip code or their school district. And I want the funding to follow the child. And that's going to do many things. Just like in private business, when, when you own a business and another business opens up down the street that does the same thing that you do, you have to raise the level of your business, right? You have to have better customer service. You have to have a better product, or you're going to be pushed out of business by your competitor. And the same thing will happen in education. When parents have a choice where their children are going and the funding follows the child, then it's going to raise the level of education all across the board. And I want to also add the trades back into high school. There are the trades all across the street are screaming for employees. And I want to give our young adults in high school some education in the trades, whether they decide to go to college after high school or whether they walk right out of high school into a high-paying job in the trades. At least they're going to have some back, uh, background in those trades so that they can make that decision. They have more choices. And there are very good-paying jobs right out of high school into the trades. You know, Not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody needs to go to college. Not everybody wants that. You know, debt hanging over them for half their life. You know, we, I'm not anti-college, right? I'm, I'm more of giving people a choice, giving them an option. And so we do need doctors. We need a couple lawyers. We need nurses. You know, we need scientists. But giving young people a choice and having the trades in high school gives them a leg up for their future.
0: Well, I think you're you're right about the trades. You know, the variety of of employment is very important, and obviously, for the last I don't know couple of decades, everybody's pushing their kids to college, 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 college. And as a mom, you know, I look at that and go, hmm, <laughs> maybe not every kid wants to sit at a desk for the rest of their lives. Um, so it, I think that's an interesting point that you make. We certainly need to have that variety of positions and variety of skill levels um, and education levels that are still options for our children, I think, if I can editorialize a little bit. One of the things that... Yeah, and I'd I um, like
1: to add, you know, when I, when I mm-hmm. said we need a couple lawyers, um, to any lawyers that are out there <laughs> listening, that was a joke. Please do not sue me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I always think of that joke about, the you know, the town is too small for a lawyer to make a good living, but two Except lawyers the, yeah. can really make a killing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and my lawyer friends have laughed at that okay um so yeah. okay so we've we've talked about education do you see a difference do, I want to get back to that question that I started asking you because you know it's kind of a brouhaha right now that this um you know the, that the sex ed bill uh, question is going on our ballot that's the first time that's ever happened and the question about that is parents should have had input into this. That's, that's the argument for um, deciding that, that issue in a vote. And yet some people don't think parents should because, let's face it, parents are not educated uh, necessarily to be educators. They're not, they don't understand the ins and outs of the system. Um, do you see any merit to any of those points?
1: I don't think the government should be mandating something like that. That That's a family matter as far as I'm concerned. But we've got some sick individuals that are proposing crap like that. I mean, it is so bad. I read it. It's so bad that they had to put a disclaimer on TVW when our representatives were debating this on the House floor. That's how bad it is. That garbage has no place in the classroom. And I talked to parents all across the state. And they are very, very upset. That's why you saw so many more signatures than they needed to get that on the ballot. And that needs to be voted out. And I want parents to know all across this state, especially single moms, single dads that are taking care of their kids by themselves, that as soon as I take office, if there are any restrictions left on by the current governor, they will be lifted by an executive order as soon as I swear in and take the oath of office.
0: Okay. Let's talk about um, probably a huge, huge issue everywhere in this country lately, uh, especially uh, in western Washington. Homelessness and drug addiction and what's happening with crime and in light of uh, what's happening with police forces. What do you think is the cause of homelessness? What do you think is the solution to homelessness? And do you think that we've been doing it correctly?
1: Well, there, there's multiple causes to homelessness, obviously, You know, and, and I'm not pigeonholing anyone. But I worked as a narcotics detective with the North Central Washington Narcotics Task Force for three years. I have dealt with people on the streets, both in mental health problems and addiction. And the biggest cause of homelessness is mental health and addiction. You know, we don't have a housing crisis. That's a small portion of it, and we can handle that easily. But the biggest part is the addiction and the mental health crisis that we're facing across this state. And it's being exacerbated by spineless politicians. Like, you can go to King County in Seattle right now. And you can have seven or eight grams of heroin on you, and the police will not arrest you because the prosecutors will not prosecute. The left says that it's not compassionate to put an addict in jail. I found exactly the opposite to be true. With, with policies like that, you attract people from all over the country who are addicts, and they want, don't want to be hassled by the police. And so they flock to places like that that are run by the Democrats and have that point of view. And they flock to those areas. That's why we've seen this big increase in people living here on the streets in tent cities and the garbage and the feces and dirty needles in our dirty parks, you know, all across this state is because of policies like that. And I found exactly the opposite to be true. You know, when I worked for the task force, when I was a narcotics detective, we had zero tolerance policy. If someone has residue of heroin in a baggie, it is a felony in Washington state. We would arrest them. They'd go to jail. They'd see the judge. The judge would give them a choice. They can go to treatment. Or they can go to prison and most of them the vast majority almost all of them chose treatment and then a funny thing starts happening they get their head clear they get off the drugs they get a job they get their kids back and they come up and want to give me a hug and thank me for saving their life it takes tough love you know they hated my guts when they got arrested i was ruining their life as far as they were concerned because they were in the fog of addiction and heroin is not something you can just decide one day, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. It has a grip on their life like nothing you've ever seen. And it takes that tough love. It takes the boot in the butt to get them headed down the right path. And to see people coming back that hated my guts, but after they get their life back together and, and start down the right path, they, they want to give me a hug and thank me. It tears in their eyes. And that that is a worthwhile cause, and that's something that I will push for. We can't not keep on with these far left policies of just leaving addicts stuck in a cycle of addiction on the street. And so many of the programs across the state are not really helping. It's a big money machine. We're spending millions and millions of taxpayer dollars on failed programs. But if you look at these companies that are running them, you can see that they donate to the Democrat party and JNC's campaign. It's a vicious money cycle. But I went through a treatment facility down in Longview and they have people that come in off the street that are, in addiction crisis, in mental health crisis. And they used to take mostly state funding, but with the state funding comes to state rules, and they were only getting a single-digit success rate. So they completely changed the rules. They quit taking mostly state funding. Now they're funded by local businesses and donors in the community. And they've gone from a single-digit success rate to 76% success. And they count success as someone coming in with an addiction problem or a mental health problem and then ending up in their own place with a job and their family unit together making their own way. That's what they count as success. So under the state rules and the state mandates with the state funding, they were getting single-digit success rates, but when they changed it, they popped that up to 76%. And that's the type of program I wanna see all across this state so that we can responsibly use the taxpayer money instead of wasting it.
0: A final question. Should you be elected and, and win the, the uh, election in November? How do you think that's going to change your family?
1: Well, I have two grown sons and seven grandkids. I've been married for 43 years. My oldest son is 40. My youngest son is 38 and seven grandkids between them. And they live in the Olympia area. My youngest son runs the business that I started in 1988 and then sold to him when I realized my childhood dream became a police officer in 2010. Um, so it's Barb and I um, that live here in Republic right now. It's going to change where we live. Obviously, we're going to be moving to the Olympia area, uh, and Barb's very happy about doing that because she'll get to see the grandkids every single day while I'm uh, trying to turn this big ship around.
0: And and what does she feel about the potential of being first lady of the state?
1: She's looking forward to it very much. You know, we we've seen we grew up here. You know, um, we were both born in the '60s. Went through school in the late '60s and into the '70s. Uh, we've seen the big changes in the state, and we want, with every ounce of our being, to get this state back the way it was when we were growing up in the '70s, when we were raising our kids in the '80s and '90s. You know, we went to the Seattle Center. We went to Seattle with our families. Our parents took us there, and then we took our children there. Seattle is not some place where I would take my family now, and a lot of families don't go there because of what's allowed to happen um, by spineless politicians who won't stand up to a small group of very loud, radical leftists.
0: Is there any question that you could answer in one minute or less that I did not ask you, but that you think it's important that you address for our listeners?
1: Yeah, I, I am not a career politician. You know, career politicians with law degrees are why we are in the position we were in. And, I'm getting asked quite often about systemic racism in Washington State. You know, there's a lot of talk about about racism in our system. And I would just say that, you know, being a police officer for the last 10 years, running my own business for 20 years before that, and being in the military, I've been around people of different races. I have not seen anyone who has it at the forefront they are racist. There are racists out there. I, I understand that. But if the system in Washington State is racist, who's been running our government for the last 35 years Democrats if the Seattle police are racist if that system is racist who's been running Seattle for decades who was the chief of police of Seattle? do you think that the chief Bess would allow racism? this is a the screaming from the far left radicals that are trying to divide us you know I, I don't know how much time you have but if I could just add, that when I was in the military, I served overseas in Korea for a year. I left my wife, my three-year-old son, and, and my one-and-a-half-year-old son in the United States because I was going to a dangerous place. I was stationed up by the DMZ between North and South Korea. and My family could not go. I spent a year away from them, but I was serving my country, right? And when I was in Korea, we had something called Team Spirit, and that's a joint military exercise between all of the forces of all of the branches of the South Korean military and all the branches of the U.S. military. And we would do an exercise all across South Korea, a joint military exercise. And I was in the Army, so we traveled from one point to another in large convoys of jeeps and trucks full of GIs and equipment. And we would travel on the country roads through Korea, through all the rice paddies, and occasionally we'd come across a village that dotted along these, these uh, dirt roads. And every time a military convoy would get close to a village, all of the people that lived there heard the convoy coming, and they would come running up to the edge of the road. Little kids, older people, and they would line the edge of the road, and as we drove by in the military convoy, they would have big smiles on their faces. They'd be waving with one hand, and in their other hand, they would be waving little American flags. They did not care what color our skin was. They didn't care what our religion was. They didn't care our education, our age, or our income. They just knew that they were Americans in those vehicles, and we were there to protect them. We were part of the greatest nation in the history of the world. And people flocked to this country because of that. And we, we need to remember that here at home. It doesn't matter the color okay. of your skin. It doesn't matter your age, your income, or your education. We are all Americans. And when we have the rule of law applied and our governor follows the Constitution, everyone is protected equally across the board. That's why I'm getting so much Thank support you. from Democrats, independents, and Republicans.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Lauren Culp, for spending so much time with us, going over your platform. And, um, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, we have extended an invitation to Governor Inslee, um, and hopefully we can get some comments from him as well. Thank you very much for sharing all of your information with us and sharing this time with us. And thank you for listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM.
2: Local news, local info. Valley, 104.9 FM. Welcome to Happy News. I'm Daisy Oz. In this episode, I'll be presenting the Heart's Intelligence. The heart has been considered the source of emotion, courage, and wisdom for centuries. For more than 28 years, the HeartMath Institute has explored the physiological mechanisms by which the heart and brain communicate and how the activity of the heart influences our perceptions, emotions, intuition, and health. They say we are at the dawn of recognizing love as the new transformational intelligence. HeartMath presents new studies showing that the human heart is much more than an efficient pump that sustains life. They say heart activity affects mental clarity, creativity, emotional stability, intuition, and personal resilience, which in turn allows for balance in relationships, health, and overall happiness. Most of us have been taught in school that the heart is constantly responding to orders sent by the brain. However, it is not commonly known that the heart actually sends more signals to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. These heart signals affect the brain, influencing emotions and higher cognitive faculties such as attention, perception, memory, and problem solving. In other words, not only does the heart respond to the brain, but the brain continuously responds to the heart. The heart is a highly complex information processing center with its own brain, called the heart brain, which influences the cranial brain mainly via the nervous system, which plays a pivotal role in having positive or negative emotional experiences. During stress and negative emotions, when the heart rhythm pattern is erratic, the pattern of neural signals traveling from the heart to the brain inhibits higher cognitive functions. This limits our ability to think clearly, remember, learn, reason, and make effective decisions. In contrast, the more ordered and stable pattern of the heart's input to the brain during positive emotional states has the opposite effect. It facilitates cognitive function and reinforces positive feelings and emotional stability. Adding our heart's love to our daily activities and connections produces measurable benefits to our own and others' well-being. Find out more in the research library at heartmath.org. I'd like to leave you with a happy heart quote. The happy heart runs with the river, floats on the air, lifts to the music, soars with the eagle, hopes with the prayer. Maya Angelou. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. And I want you to be happy. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. Happy News is produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Choelea, Washington. My theme music was provided by John Bartman.